Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest is a former state and federal prosecutor with extensive experience leading and managing criminal trials and appeals. As a state prosecutor in New Jersey and a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honick directed major criminal cases against street gangs, drug trafficking organizations, illegal firearm traffickers, corrupt public officials, child predators, and white-collar criminals. Ellie also serves as a Rutgers University scholar, is a CNN legal analyst, and is featured on Cross-Exam, a staple at CNN on the weekend. Ellie Honick, welcome back to Words Matter. Glad to be here. We have much to discuss. Yes. (laughs) So it's all over now in the sense of the trial. I I don't know that it's all over in terms of the political fallout. How do you think the House managers did in their case? What did they, where did they score and where did they miss? So overall, I have to say, I'm not just impressed, but really in awe of the job that the House managers did. And I'll date this back to the beginning of the House investigation. First of all, to pull together the case that they pulled together on such a short time frame, a complex case with, they had subpoena power, but it was largely defied with very limited subpoena power. And to still pull together a case that I think was understandable and compelling, the way they did it was remarkable. And With respect to the performance during the trial, and to some extent this goes for the Trump's lawyers as well, to some extent, and I'll carve out some exceptions, but I thought the quality of the lawyering and advocacy, especially over the Q&A portion, was remarkable. The the thoughtfulness, the precision of the responses, the preparedness, nobody got caught off guard, the level of rhetoric, I thought it was really persuasive. Now, look, Adam Schiff is obviously a gifted Attorneys gifted, and this this is a perfect setting for him. I thought Hakeem Jeffries and uh, and Representative Crow were really good. I thought Val Demings, um, she's the only one who's not a lawyer, but I thought she was effective as well. And Sylvia Garcia w- was good. Nadler, I don't think, is very good. Uh, just in terms of the presentation. On the other side, let's put aside for a second the the shading of truth and and that kind of thing. But I thought Philbin got once he got his bearings was really effective and impressive as well and Cipollone to a lesser extent Cipollone was a little bit looser with the truth and then you have your whole other category for the sideshows which I'm sure we'll get to the Dershowitz and uh, Ken Starrs were yeah, disa- we'll, disasters we'll, we'll get to that this is very different than uh, a trial yes. that's in any court state federal you know appellate uh, where there are definitive rules of evidence of uh, what's germane and telling the truth. Yeah. It was my sense that if there was a judge in the room, several of the White House defense lawyers would have been held in contempt. Talk about that. Yeah. One of the things that was so different about this trial from a normal criminal trial is just the flow and the rhythm. Because when you're doing a criminal trial, there is a very natural back and forth. You you almost never get an uninterrupted platform. Uh, generally speaking, you'll have openings. One side goes, then it'll go. They'll go an hour. Then the other side goes. Then you call your witnesses. It's examination, cross examination, and while you're even doing your examinations or or your 
jury addresses, you're getting objected to. So there's a constant check on you as a in a real trial case as a lawyer. If you say something that's a little bit outside the record, if you say something that's not been properly admitted in evidence, even if you don't, sometimes the other side just wants to throw you off. There's a constant, I guess I would say, natural check on everything that's being said in a criminal trial. Here, it was three days uninterrupted for each side. I mean, that boggled my mind as a trial lawyer. There was no objections. There was no objection, Your Honor, that's not in the record. Objection, Your Honor, misstates the testimony. So, um, yeah, I think I think by and large, it's hard to think of anything to me off the top of my head that the House managers said or did that was out of bounds or or really pushed the boundaries of truth. But But there were some examples coming from the defense team. For example, I mean, early on, Cipollone said, well, Republicans weren't allowed in the skiff. Obvious misstatement, and I think that hurt his credibility. But even some of the ways that the facts were argued later, the, for example, the continued insistence Ukraine didn't know. Uh, there's tons of evidence yeah. that they knew. So uh, they stepped a little bit farther over the line, and there was no way to check them. Yeah, I mean, I think the best example is how they treated Victor Shokin, the corrupt prosecutor. They They continued to say that he was investigating Burisma, right. and in fact, the opposite was true. Right. So this is where, and it will be the crux of our conversation here, politics and legal theory and legal practice merge. But let me throw one more at you. Monday morning quarterbacking, mm. is there something the House managers could have done differently in constructing the articles and making the argument, in holding them, not holding them, all of those things, that would have made a difference? Two things that I can think of. First of all, I think the number one thing that they'll be second-guessed on, and look, this is what we do now. It's a little hard for me to second-guess because there's a little bit of an ethic with prosecutors of they're the ones who are in the battlefield. But look, the, the big one is should they have charged crimes or alleged crimes in, in the articles of impeachment? They could have done so with, to me, little or no cost. They, they still should have led with abuse of power, as they did. Constitutionally, you can impeach for abuse of power. But they could have either had subsections within abuse of power saying, we allege abuse of power, including but not limited to the following. A, bribery. B, extortion. C, foreign election aid. Or they could have gone for separate articles of impeachment for each of those crimes or one of those crimes. And I think the reason they did not do that is... Early on in this whole process, people were really having a hard time with the concept of quid pro quo. And I think the calculation was, let's not get pulled into the weeds of arguing over legal concepts, elements of crimes like quid pro quo, corrupt exchange. We don't want this to look like a, a, a jury instruction where in order to find Article, article 1, you must find the following three elements. I think they wanted to keep it high level in general. The problem, though, is is a couple things. One, it opened up this whole argument to what Donald Trump aptly called impeachment light. I, I don't mean it's an apt phrase, but I mean, sometimes he has a good turn of phrase that I think resonates with people. And I think the idea of impeachment light, and then look, a lot of the debate that we saw at the trial was about the fact that there's no crime here. And we know that's not really the law, but does it resonate with people? And it opened the door to this Dershowitzy defense of the abuse of power as alleged is not impeachable, which we saw a lot of Republicans then take shelter under, including in their vote for no witnesses. So I think that's one big tactical decision that was made. The other one is in an ideal world where time wasn't a factor, the House could have gone to court to enforce its subpoenas. And this goes to Article 2, the obstruction of Congress, one of the main objections from Republicans, and I think with some with some heft to it, was 
you served subpoenas. We didn't. We, we believed they were defective, legally defective, but you never took us to court on it. And so you just jumped right to impeachment. And I, A, it would have taken away that argument. And B, maybe they would have gotten some of this evidence. Maybe if they fought for Bolton, we would have heard from Bolton under oath. And same with Mulvaney and same with Pompeo. I think they would have won in the courts. But the practical, um, the practical problem is they just didn't have time. And we saw Jerry Nadler get strung out for months on this. And I think that shift didn't want to go down the same path. So um, because Katie uh, wasn't able to join us this week and because we've seen sort of the back and forth of House managers' time and White House defense time, we're going to do something a little bit different here today, which is I'm going to yield the floor now to All you, right. Howie. You, <laughs> you are now the, um, the, the prosecutor. Yield to the gentleman? I, I yield. Well, let's, I just yield. Let's just leave it <laughs> yield there. Yield to the guy. I just yield to the guy across <laughs> from me. And um, I, I will have to answer your questions. Okay. Number one, was this whole – incident a plus or a minus for Joe Biden in terms of his 2020 prospects? Let me answer that two ways. Um, uh, Is it going to be yes and no? uh, No, (laughs) I think the answer is um, we'll certainly know better once people caucus in Iowa. Uh, And because of the way podcasts work, some people will download this the day after. But my my view is it's a net plus (laughs) for a couple of reasons. One is we live in a tribal society, whether it's your political party, your religion, your ethnicity, and it's – Democrats are – and this goes for Republicans too. Democrats are okay with other Democrats criticizing them, but they're not okay with Republicans (laughs) getting into their business. And I think this all started and came out at a time where Biden was floundering and there was some prospect of him kind of falling off the map. And I think there's been a little bit of a rallying around. The second and more important thing is Democrats are enraged. And they're enraged Mm -hmm. by the fact that Donald Trump has not been held accountable. And that raises the stakes in this election. And it moves away from do I ideologically believe in candidate A versus candidate B to the point of the only thing that matters is defeating Donald Trump. Right. And I think that helps Joe Biden. I don't know that that helps Joe Biden in Iowa, which is a unique place, and maybe even New Hampshire, but it will definitely, I think, over the long run, boost his candidacy. So so a net plus. The second way I look at this is, is I look at it from Trump's point of view. In some ways, Trump got exactly what he wanted. He wanted to smear Joe Biden. He wanted the Ukrainians to do it for him. They wouldn't. Mm-hmm. They were willing to do it. He just happened to get caught. But then he got... Uh, the United States Senate to do it, and, and he he got what he wanted, but he's paid an enormous price for it. The idea that impeachment will rally people around him, I don't think you'll see. This, the people who support him have always supported him. They didn't go anywhere, but I don't see independents and conservative Democrats looking at the entire impeachment process, particularly with the way the cover-up was uh, engineered as saying, yeah, I'm going to rally around my president right now. So oddly, it's like in the real estate business, he got the building that he wanted, but he's so overpaid for it, it may collapse his entire empire. Well, that leads perfectly into my next question. What do you see for the Republicans in the future? Like, let's let's think post-Trump, whether it's 2020 or 2024. And and how do you see that party going and who do you see sort of emerging as the leaders of that party? 
I have for some time thought that the Republican Party was the equivalent of dead man walking. It had major challenges facing it on the demographic point of view. The people under 35 think very differently than people over 35 in this country. And that's really bad news for the Republicans given their ideological base. And, and I hate to say it, but the people over 35 uh, are going to get older and die and the people under 35 are going to get older and be alive. And oh, boy. That's, so, bad. That's bad news for both of us. Yeah, worse news for me, but there you go. <laughs> so I think that was already a challenge and the Republican Party felt that. And they were faced with a choice of moderating their point of views, modernizing the party, particularly on social issues, mm -hmm. things like gay marriage, things like climate, right. where young people have very, very strong views. It is a tolerant generation and a future-oriented generation. Or they could hang on for dear life to some of the things that sustain them. And that's where Trump comes in. There was an interesting explanation I heard the other day that if you think of Republicans like an endangered species, what happens as a species gets to the point of endangered is they either evolve and survive or they cling so hard to the things that have gotten them where to they are, they become extinct. Right. And I think that's what's going on with the Republican Party. So post-Trump, the really interesting thing to look at is not what's going on in this election. It's what's going on in the next election. And you already have Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo, who, particularly Nikki Haley, could have gone the more moderate, modern route. She's a youngish woman who made differences with Trump known when she was at the UN. And both her and Pompeo have gone all in on, I'm more Trumpy than Trump. <laughs> And that tells you that the instincts of survival have taken hold within the Republican Party. And if this evolutionary theory applies to politics, it will lead them to be an endangered species. I think if you look 20 years out, you're going to have two political parties because we're set up as a two. And one of them is going to look like what I'd call the Joe Biden Democratic Party, and that will be the conservative party. And one of them will look like the Bernie Sanders AOC party, which will be akin to democratic socialism. That's where the country's going. It's not there now. Right. Uh, and I, I don't believe Bernie Sanders can get elected because of that, because we're not there yet. But we will go from being a center-right country to a center-left country. And, you know, if you want to look for some good news in what's happened over the last three, that's good news yeah. because a progressive agenda is much better for average Americans than a conservative agenda. I was going to ask you if you were retained by the RNC as a consultant, what would your prescription be? But I think you, I think you kind of answered it right there in terms of moving the party ahead for, for you know, for next phases. There, were, there was a time in which the Democratic Party could not win a national election. Jimmy Carter won a national election because of the Nixon pardon, the Nixon fallout. Um, Democrats didn't win again until 1992, and that was because Bill Clinton, as a charismatic figure, pulled the Democratic Party back towards the middle and made the Democratic Party electable. Republicans need that kind of person. The problem is, as we were just talking about, is the charismatic figures in the party, and I think Nikki Haley is one, and I think as much as Mike Pompeo makes me want to pull my hair out, <laughs> has real skills as a politician. 
they're going in the other direction. They're going in the direction, you know, of the the dodo bird that could have survived but took the wrong path and now is extinct. I just compared Mike Pompeo to a dodo bird. I like it. <laughs> it works. It works. It works. What do you see as the impact of this impeachment process we just went through on some of the down-ballot races, including the Senate races coming up? Who do you see as endangered? What do you see happening to the balance of power in the Senate in particular? Yeah, that's it's a really good question. I, I think if I'd make one prediction out of what happened last week is I still don't know whether Donald Trump can get reelected or not. It's an open question in my mind. I think as of today, the Democrats will retake the Senate. Wow. I think Susan Collins will lose. I think Cory Gardner will lose. I think Martha McSally will lose. And one other, I don't know who it is, um, will lose. And I think the Democrats will hold their seats, Doug Jones being probably the most vulnerable. But Republicans are deciding between the damaged Jeff Sessions down there and, and a pedophile. <laughs> so let me let me just build off of that answer. One of the questions I get a lot, if the Democrats turn the Senate in 2020, could they re-impeach Donald Trump? And the short answer to me is legally, sure, but politically, no way. And by the way, that was a common answer, I think, that, that I gave to a lot of questions that came up in this impeachment. Legally, sure, but politically and practically, it'll never fly. The one thing that you can say about Donald Trump is you never know what's going to be the cliffhanger at the end of his reality season and what's the episode one of season four or five. I wouldn't rule anything out. He has broken so many molds. And if he wins, I, you know, obviously I don't think there'll be an impeachment, uh, another impeachment before election day. But if more information comes out and there are other more serious violations of his oath of office, I wouldn't rule it out. Really? Could you see Pelosi uh, green lighting another impeachment of him? It depends what he does. Some of this is there will be a lot of pundits who will say, well, Pelosi will have to, his putting her tail between her legs sort of drifting off and this was a failure. I don't think she thinks she failed. I think she, she believes she succeeded. And I agree with her. This is about a very simple concept politically, which is, are our leaders accountable? Mm -hmm. Are our leaders above the law? Does absolute power absolutely corrupt? She's on the right side of all of those questions. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that back. Let me turn it back on you, though. Wait, can I just ask one Pelosi thing? Yeah. Because you and I have had a lot of discussions about yeah. Pelosi, and the pattern has always been, I say, why is she doing this? This makes no sense. And you say she knows what she's doing, and it turns out it works for her. But- has she really been pushed by that sort of greater good? Because one thing that is hard for me to get my mind around is how she she wanted to kill the Mueller impeachment, right? I think we agree on that. Yeah. She did not believe that it was the right move, either politically or in terms of her constitutional duty or otherwise, to impeach based on the Mueller report. She was obviously trying to slowly <laughs> take it away from Nadler and let it go away until this transcript came out. So what changed? Did it, did it just become that she had no choice? Did something else change? No, I think there was a fundamental change. And this, for better or worse, my evolution on all these issues happens to have been documented in the New York Times right. uh, over and over again. <laughs> but I think, and again, I've not talked to her about this, So, but I think our thinking is very similar. Because of the way Bill Barr mischaracterized the Mueller report, and because of uh, Bob Mueller's unwillingness to take a position on almost anything yep. beyond this happened, this happened, this kind of thing, there wasn't a sense among a lot of Democrats, 
including me, including Nancy Pelosi. I'm not trying to put us on the same level. But we agreed that impeachment wasn't the right political move. What changed is, is, is a very simple thing. And that Friday night when Adam Schiff came out and did that late night press conference, it changed instantly in my mind once I knew what he was talking about. Hmm. Mueller was about something that had already happened. It was 2016. As much as I believe particularly the WikiLeaks stuff could have turned the election, you could just as easily argue that James Comey turned the election or you could just as easy – you can't win that argument in the legal slash political world. Mm -hmm. Ukraine was about the next election. This was about the president as – it took Schiff a little while to get to this, but when he finally did, you heard it over again. This is about the president cheating. This is about the president trying to rig the next election in his own favor and using our government and our taxpayer dollars to do it. That left Democrats, I believe, with no choice. To stand there and say, hey, don't worry about it. We'll just wait to the election was not an option. My guess is she decided it as quickly as most of the people in the caucus did because remember, a good section of the caucus didn't want to do it with just Mueller and it was an avalanche once this came out of members in her caucus that wanted to do this. So it is as simple as not relitigating the past, which politically I think would have been neutral at best, negative at worst, to debating where we are going as a country. So I think she was in the right place before Ukraine and in the right place after Ukraine. So let me put my prosecutor hat back on. Go ahead. Talk about the legal implications going forward. Are presidents going forward going to take the view that Article 2 now uh, supersedes Article 1 and that congressional oversight is neutered? And whether it's Trump or it's President Haley or President Cory Booker or whomever it is, they've just decided that what happened – last week with the vote, settled the separation of powers debate in this country? I think one of the long-lasting impacts of what we just went through is that the balance of powers has shifted. I think the executive branch is stronger now than it was and probably will remain stronger for the next generation. And I think Congress has been weakened. And and we can sort of run through the ways. But a lot of the checks on the presidency, I think, have been compromised or lowered. First of all, impeachment itself. Now, look, we, we know prior impeachments are not necessarily binding precedent. But just to boil it down, if this isn't impeachable, what is? We can all think of worse scenarios, worse outrageous scenarios, taking a bag of cash from the Ukrainians to influence policy or something. But as realistic scenarios go, it's hard to think of a more obviously impeachable and removable conduct than this. So that is one important thing. But yes, the subpoena battle is really important here. And we don't have all the answers yet because Congress served a whole slew of subpoenas over on the executive branch. The executive branch said, You can pound sand on all of them across the board. That's unprecedented. No president, including Richard Nixon, has ever just said no to everything. Nixon said you get some of it, you don't get others, and he still got impeached for obstruction of Congress. And a weird wrinkle here is we're not going to get resolution 
The only case that's actually wending its way through the courts right now is Don McGahn. And that's that's not even executive privilege. That's this weird absolute immunity argument, which I believe is go- – it failed in the district court. I think it's going to fail all the way. But that was always a fringy extremist theory that presidents had and never really actually exerted in court anyway. But if you put try to put yourself in the shoes of the next president, whatever party, and let's say Congress, Senate, or House controlled by the other party digs into you, why would you comply with any subpoena? And – there's no ultimately where this will be corrected is in the courts, but we're not going to get anything or not. We're not going to get much in the courts because the Democrats never did go to court really on the bulk of these cases. Now, I will say one thing the Republican attorneys did well or may have just been fortuitous is leverage the political timeline versus the legal timeline. If you didn't have political considerations, if you didn't have to worry about a 2020 election and a primary and you're running the show for Democrats, you go, we're going to take six months more to investigate this. We're going to go to court. We're going to fight for Bolton. We're going to fight for Mulvaney. We're going to fight for those documents. Uh, you would take a year more, but you can't as a practical matter because you got the 2020 election looming. And I think as a result, we have some bad law and some bad precedent. Now it's going to take years and years to undo. Yeah, the irony of all of the Republican complaints about how rushed they were in the House is they did the trial in 10 days. Yeah. But let's put that aside. <laughs> Talk about what I thought was jaw-dropping, mind-boggling, crazy legal theory, Alan Dershowitz. Oh, boy. (laughs) So first of all, I I have to say, I used to put in to get into Professor Dershowitz's class every semester. They had a lottery system for it, and I never got in. I was 0 for 6 semesters of getting into his class, and boy, do I not regret that now. Um, He was an embarrassment, and he was... I think, really made a fool of himself, both in the way he contradicted himself. Sure, from 1998 to now, he's contradicted himself wildly. He used to say, you don't need a crime. I'm turned around. I'm trying to keep up with the many turns of Alan Dershowitz. And now he says, uh, there has to be a crime. But he was turning himself around day by day throughout this process. At the one point, he said, well, I've studied my old position and I realized I'm more right now than I was then. I mean, what, what? That's almost like a like a stand-up comedian came up with that line. But his his last salvo was this idea that it can't be an impeachable quid pro quo, an impeachable exchange, as long as the president has some intent, some good intent. With good intent being, I need to win this election because I'm the best person for the job. I mean, that is a nutso standard, and I'll tell you how you can tell. He cites nothing and nobody. Alan Dershowitz has been studying this stuff for his whole career, for decades and decades. There's no end on the number of scholars and and practitioners who can be studied. And Dershowitz cites from the book of Dersh. And that's it. That's chapter and verse. And there's real harm in what he did too. It's not just offensive to watch what he did. You don't just go, oh, he's wrong. The problem is he provided cover for the, for Republicans, but but a special kind of cover, not just cover to vote not guilty, but cover to vote no on witnesses, because his theory was perfectly tailored to allow the Republican senators to say, well, the professor says even if the worst alleged is true, even if John Bolton comes in here and testifies to the worst of Donald Trump's imagination, it's not impeachable. And all they needed was a thin little hook, and they got it. He gave it to him. Yeah, and, and he played a pretty cynical game just by being there. He sold himself as someone who was not in Trump's camp. Yeah. He, uh, he did not 
care about the facts, and he was a constitutional scholar, when in fact, he's a defense attorney. I mean, he said over and over, I don't represent Donald Trump, I represent the Constitution. First of all, get over yourself. That's ridiculous. Second of all, the guy wrote a book called The Case Against Impeaching Donald Trump in 2018, before any Ukraine thing happened. That is a ridiculously uh, self-aggrandized position to take. I think he alienated a lot of people. But look, I think people in Trump's camp see him as a hero. He came in and did – he lent his name and he lent the weight of his own background and reputation and even to an extent Harvard Law School to this theory that I think helped Trump. He was going to get acquitted in all likelihood either way, but even dodge witnesses. Ellie, one of the things that struck me when President Clinton went through uh, impeachment – was he had two sets of lawyers. He had his own private lawyers who represented the president as a human being, as a person. And then he had his White House counsel who represented the presidency. And they were very different and they were often at odds on strategy, on how to make the argument. So much so that Charles Ruff, the president's White House counsel, refused to show President Clinton his opening statement. In fact, he called me into his office the night before said, I want to show you this, the opening statement. I want you to look at it as a non-lawyer and see if there's anything that jumps out. He said, but I'm not going to show it to you unless you promise you won't tell the president. And I promised and I saw it. In this trial, there didn't seem to be any distinction. It seemed like everybody there, no one was representing the presidency. They were just representing Donald Trump, the person. It's a great point to make. And so people understand, Pat Cipollone, and Charles Ruff held the same position. They were White House counsel. And when you're White House counsel, your client is not Donald John Trump or William Jefferson Clinton. Your client is the presidency, the institution of the presidency. And some people did know, boy, Cipollone is out there like an attack dog. And there's no regard for the presidency itself. It's, it's, there's no distinction. There was no distinction in, in his function or performance or ethic as between Pat Cipollone, White House counsel, and Jay Sekulow, private counsel. And I think, in a, sadly, I think that may be a relic. I mean, I didn't know Chuck Ruff, but I, I worked at the firm Covington and Burling where he was at. I started there right around the time he died and he was revered. And if you look back in history, the way he handled that position, I mean, I almost wonder if that would even happen now in the post-Trump world. Somebody could say, yes, I'm the White House counsel. Yes, I understand this act I'm taking might not be in your individual best interest, but I think it's necessary for the office. I mean, what what a what a sort of noble view of the job, but it, unfortunately also potentially an extinct one. And do, th- do we think going forward, harking back on presidents who no longer feel subject to oversight or any accountability to Congress, do you think future presidents will view the attorney general as their private attorney? Do you think they'll view the White House counsel as their private attorney? and the U.S. government as a a reservoir for their own fortunes as opposed to uh, for the countries. Well, if you were strictly following precedent and your mindset was, I want to get away with everything I can possibly get away with, then sure. I guess the idealistic slash naive side of me thinks, well, the men and women who will become president after Donald Trump, whatever that may be, from whatever party, will be of of a bit of higher moral bearing and have concerns beyond that. But one of the one of the long lasting pieces of damage done by all this is the damage to DOJ and Bill Barr. It's hard to overstate just how destructive Bill Barr has been to the institution of DOJ to the point where lifers, DOJ vets like me, who always give DOJ the benefit of the doubt and always presume the best 
intentions have lost that now with respect to Bill Barr. The way he's used DOJ throughout this has been entirely to protect Donald Trump every step of the way from the from the moment the whistleblower complaint came out. And the law says if the whistleblower complaint is deemed credible and urgent, it shall be forwarded to Congress. Bill Barr's DOJ came up with this cockamamie legal position that no, it doesn't because it's the president. He tried to keep that whistleblower complaint from ever seeing the light of day on through refusing to open up, even take a look at an investigation on anything on Ukraine. And by the way, we all know the president cannot be indicted. Rudy Giuliani can be indicted. Mick Mulvaney can be indicted for bribery, for extortion, if the facts fit. We don't have quite enough of the facts about them. But the fact that DOJ wouldn't even take a look, I mean, we all take it for granted now that everything Bill Barr is going to do and has done is is done in no different a capacity than if the president's private attorney ran DOJ. And I really hope that changes. I mean, I, th- I think it's going to be a long, long time before we see another Janet Reno become attorney general who did things that were often contrary to the interests of Bill I, Clinton, I, I, I re- as I'm I, sure you I, know. I, I remember. <laughs> so one of my special projects over the last five or six months, uh, primarily in the green room at CNN, is to work with Elliot to turn him from being somewhat of a political novice into a seasoned <laughs> political cynic. Uh, and we've, we've, it's working. We, we, we've had quite a few conversations where I've had to come to Elliot after the argument a couple of days later and say, see, I was right. Um, you know, don't, don't argue with me about you usually this stuff. Do it, but usually do it in, in, a, in a more biting way. Now that you are a seasoned uh, political cynic, go ahead, ask me some questions. To to just do the horse race game because it's kind of fun. These impeachments have a way of being becoming career and legacy defining. So who do you think who's involved in this in any way uses this as a springboard? Who do you see emerging out of this as a a, a real future, whether it's contender for president or some enormous difference-making position? Well, I think there are two stars on the Democratic side, Adam Schiff, who could be elected to anything if just Democrats voted right now. Right. The question is, what does he want? Um, And I have no idea what the answer to that is. Does he want to run for president in 2024 or 2028, depending on how this election plays out? The other interesting character in all this, and I think his uh, rising star, is Akeem Jeffries. Akeem is someone I've known for a long time, uh, so I'm a little biased because I I have a lot of respect and affection for him. But he's, he's got a choice right now. He has to decide whether... He's going to take the risk and stay in the House, go through leadership, and one day become the first African-American Speaker of the House. Or if he looks at his old colleague, Joe Crowley, and says, you know, at any point, this can blow up. And uh, he would be the odds-on favorite to be the next mayor of New York if he decided he wanted to do that. I think he could win that uh, going away. So he has some uh, choices to make. But I think they stood out. I think everybody on the House managers team uh, did well, but they're the two who have the widest political options and and choices to make. Adam Schiff uh, might decide that he'd like to be speaker. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's. You know, it's it's reasonable that within the next one or two cycles she she'll retire, not because she's pushed out, just because everybody's time comes uh, eventually. And right now, he has enormous power within that caucus. He may decide that that's not the job he wants, that he would rather run a committee rather than to be the Pelosi and the enforcer of the caucus. So I think those are, on the Democratic side, uh, the big winners. On the Republican side, 
there's clearly some people who that came out of this process that raised their profile. I'll use Elise Stefanik right. a, as an example. If she wins re-election, she's on track to, to be a rising star within the Republican Party. She may not win re-election, though. Right. Democrats in her district are energized. <laughs> yeah. I look more on the Republican side and find some losers. And there is a thread that runs through all of them. And I'll list them in order. Rudy Giuliani, Alan Dershowitz, and Ken Starr. And all of them are losers because they were in this for the wrong reasons. They weren't in this for the national interest. They weren't in this to support their president. They weren't in this to take body blows for the president. They were in this to just be relevant. Right. And there's, there's a pathetic quality to not knowing when it's time to step aside and get off the stage. And all three of them have, I think, terminally damaged their reputations, uh, particularly Giuliani. Yeah. Uh, but I would say the same for Star Dershowitz because more than anything, they wanted people to pay attention to them. They wanted people to say, you're the smartest person and I'm the one the president talks to and look at me, look at me, look at me. And they are, they, I think are the big losers here. It's an open question and it's going to be what we debate for the next seven or eight months on Trump. In some ways he got something out of this. He got to smear Biden. He got to solidify this whole base argument of it's us against them. They're coming after you. I'm the only thing that can keep you protected from them. Just powerful political argument. But he's paid an enormous price. And the Democrats opened a window onto his corrupt nature. And it'll be malpractice if they can't drive a truck through it. So I have two more questions for you, both relating to your, your sort of past. Ken Starr, I know, I know. I wanted to set up a Lockhart cam on the day when, when Ken Starr was speaking. Why on earth do you think they brought him in? I get why he wanted to do this. Well, I think you just talked about that. But whose interest was it in to bring him in? Was it in Trump's interest? Was it in Cipollone's interest? Was it just the ultimate troll move? What, what do you think was behind that decision to bring him in? Before we had the internet, we'd call it something like it was just the ultimate poke in the eye. Right. Now it's trolling. That's really all it was. It was the hero of the right was going to come out, ride, you know, from the sunset for one last stand. His argument was unintelligible. I started with a sense of outrage. And by the end, I I had almost a little sympathy for him because he was pathetic he was a defeated small man on the you know where giants had once stood and it was a ploy and it was a ploy that backfired on that it didn't change the the result it's it's not that important but it it is indicative of politicians now who only care about themselves and people who only care about themselves and where they fit as opposed to the people again the giants in the senate who used to put uh, the country first. And that's the lesson of this. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is where I thought Adam Sch- the most memorable thing Adam Schiff said was in his wrap-up, I want to say on Thursday night in there, it was the second to last night. Right. So it wasn't his final push, but the most memorable and things that I, the thing that will stick with me forever was when he talked about you can't trust Donald Trump. You can't you know you trust. Can't. Yeah. You know you can't, and you can't trust him to put the country's interests ahead of his own. Because when there's a choice, he'll always choose. And I don't think his message was about Donald Trump. 
his message was to the hundred senators in the room of, are you like that? Mm. Are you like Donald Trump who will always put your party's interests ahead of your country, who will always put your own personal interests ahead of your country? And he challenged them to be better, and they failed. Hmm. So one last question for you. Is it even possible to identify a sort of conventional wisdom on impeachment, or does it just depend so much on who the person is and what the conduct is? Because it's hard. How do you compare Donald Trump doing what he's was impeached for with Bill Clinton and what he was impeached for? To me, they're completely separate. But is there any common thread? The thread may not flow cleanly, but you you know this is what we do. We try to figure out what have we learned. What what about how does this compare to the last time? And there's no doubt that on one level, the Republicans' uh, approach in 1988 backfired on them. They they lost a midterm election that it had been 150 years since they someone lost an election in that way. Mm-hmm. Clinton went to 73% job approval. It was The country rallied around him. On the other hand, Bush beat Gore uh, in 2000. Was that a hangover uh, from Clinton? Narrowest, was, yeah. was Gore, was, was the election you know, stolen, was Gore not the best candidate? Who knows? And we could talk forever on that. So let's put that aside. I think there's there's no way to compare the two, but let me focus on one difference as what I, I'll be looking for from the public. Bill Clinton, from the from two days after he was deposed, took a very distinct approach to any time he was asked about this. He'd say, I did it. I'm sorry. I take full responsibility. And you'll remember the day that he was acquitted, he walked out and he he said, I'm sorry, I take responsibility. Then he said something remarkable, I think. He said, and I'm sorry I put the country through this. Mm -hmm. And everybody in, I think, in the country thought, yeah, you did. And I'm pissed. And I, I really wish you hadn't. But thank you for acknowledging that you've kind of screwed up everybody's lives for the last year. Trump takes the opposite approach. Trump, it's perfect. Everything I did, they're out to get me. It's all about me. Don't worry. I can, I know what's best for you. Just, just stick with me. I think that's going to have a very big impact on the political fallout here. And I think it's going to keep Trump from expanding his base to getting the necessary votes to be reelected. And therefore, his entire campaign won't be about why people should vote for him. It'll be about why they shouldn't vote for Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, sure. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, whoever, you know, Mike Bloomberg, whoever, right. whoever that is. And it sets up a very ugly campaign, a very bitter campaign, and a campaign that Trump only has one route to win. And I think it's going to be tough because there's no sense of humility. There's no sense of regret. There's no sense of responsibility. And I think a lot of people who've been through this and are tired of this and tired of the show and the the fatigue that goes with the Trump drama would look at him differently if he just once said, hey, I get it. I, I This is not the way I wanted it to go and I take responsibility for some of this. And that's where I think you can't compare them. And I wouldn't expect just because Clinton got a political boost out of being impeached and then acquitted, I don't think 
you one can expect that Trump will have the same thing because his reaction is so different. Hmm. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if he if he showed some contrition? Well, I mean, I. My reaction would be similar to watching Ken Starr on the floor of the Senate right. make the opposite argument that he made um, 20 years ago. Yeah. Let's finish with um, one last question. It's a broad question, so you can take it any way you want. And not being a lawyer, I look at the White House and the presidency now kind of this way. This is the argument they've made. They've made the argument very loudly and clearly that the president can't be indicted. They've gone into court and said the president can't be investigated. Mm-hmm. They have then went into the, um, the House and the Senate and said that the president can't be impeached. Are there any guardrails left? Legal guardrails. There are. And I agree that this is closer to the imperial presidency, so to speak, than we've been in a long time, maybe ever. But to me, there are two primary guardrails. The more practical, tangible one is the courts themselves. And I think a lot of these disputes that are winding their way through the courts will come out against the president. And I think the courts will set things straight. For example, this argument that the president cannot be investigated criminally, that's now going up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has taken that case They have to reject that. They have to. And by the way, footnote to all this, let's see how our newly constituted court handles it, right? There's some concern with now Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. But I I think that that I can't even be investigated argument will be firmly rejected. I think if and when the issue of congressional subpoenas gets fully litigated, and we're seeing it to some extent with the McGahn case, we could have seen others and we may see others. There's other reasons that congressional subpoenas may be issued. I think the courts will restore some of the balance back over to Congress now, because these, again, these assertions of executive privilege, these broad defiance, most of that has never been litigated. The other big factor, I think, is, is simply, again, maybe I'm slipping back into being naive or idealistic, but just the idea, the concept of norms, just the idea of norms being respected. I mean, Donald Trump is part of the reason people hate him. Part of the reason people love him is he is a norm breaker. And he has defied norms ranging from hiring, having his daughter and son-in-law work in senior positions in the White House to not turning over his tax returns to um, little things like not going to the White House correspondence dinner. And I think whoever takes that job next, I hope from, from whatever party, respect some of those norms. And if not, by the way, the law can evolve as well. We can pass laws uh, clarifying the anti-nepotism law, requiring someone to turn over their tax returns. So I think those are sort of the two big takeaways. I do think if you were to graph the power of the presidency and the executive branch, it's at a high point right now. But I think the natural gravity built into our system will pull it down. It'll take years or decade, but but I, I think it'll come back. Ellie, thanks so much for joining us. I look forward to cultivating your political cynicism as the years go uh, go by. I know you'll be back soon. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. It is always great to have Ellie on. Uh, every time I talk to him, which lately has been every morning uh, in the green room at CNN, I learn something about how the law works and what the Constitution means. It's not very often, and I think people who listen every week will get this, that I'm at a loss for words. But I am somewhat at a loss for words right now. And I don't want to sound outraged and alarmist. But at the risk of doing that, last week 
was a very, very dark moment in the United States Senate and in our democracy. The Republicans in the Senate, with the cheerleading of the president, have removed important guardrails. And it's not hard to imagine looking forward four, eight, ten years and seeing the world's best experiment in democracy and governing move towards a more authoritarian dictatorship where the president is imperial and that the president can do no wrong. And I think for some people, I, I get that that may sound like a bitter response to getting the results you didn't want, but I think it's very real. When a president can, and one of the most so-called distinguished lawyers in the country can go on the floor of the Senate and essentially say, the president can do whatever he wants. And when the president gets up and says, I have Article 2, I can do whatever I want. And when you need two-thirds of a majority to hold the president accountable, and the Republican Party says, the president can do anything he wants, the path that the slippery slope away from democracy, it becomes very clear. And I think that's where we are. And I think people like Lamar Alexander, Mitch McConnell have perverted the idea of public service. Now, Lamar Alexander came into office and he was elected governor in Tennessee in 1978. And he ran against a corrupt governor. And he had to be sworn in three days early because the corrupt governor, Ray Blanton, was selling pardons. And the legislator, run by a great Southern politician, Ned McWhorter, said, we've got to get this new governor in, even though he's in the party opposite, because the guy in there now is selling pardons. And he came in as a corruption fighter, and he's leaving as a lamb. He's leaving as a member of a political party that is subservient to a corrupt leader, a cult leader in Donald Trump. And that's dangerous. So there's, there's really two things we can do as concerned citizens. One is decide, screw it. System's rigged. I'm not going to bother. I'm busy enough. Let the crooks and criminals run the government and we'll just hope for the best. The second thing, and what I would hope people do, is throw the crooks out. And we're only nine months away from an election. It's very simple. On election day, Donald Trump will either get a second term and rewarded for everything he's done, or he'll be thrown out in a movement that's of the people and by the people, and he will face the consequences of being an ex-president who's also someone who used the power of the office to enrich himself and to corrupt the entire process. We can't do that by saying screw it and going back to our lives. We've got nine months. We know what we have to do. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 